So, good afternoon, everybody. It's, it's beautiful, isn't it, out there? Um, although, as we know, our perception is what makes something beautiful and not in some way. Is it beautiful in here as well, in your heart? That's more, that's as variable probably as the weather here, isn't it? So, just to let you know, um, to remind you that a lot of you will be going on Wednesday morning, so which makes tomorrow the last full day of practice. Um, and has the schedule gone up yet for tomorrow? <clears throat> it will go up probably at supper time. There will be some, some, a few different things on the schedule tomorrow to support you thinking about closing and some uh, different things to consider and... Um, in the morning at 9.30, and I will offer a speaking and listening exercise where there's a kind of formal way of, of breaking the silence where you get to be with each other still quite formally, and then you'll go back into silence after that, and you'll kind of transition through the day. In the afternoon, um, Kirsten Yen and I will come in at 4.15, and we'll do closing part one, <laughs> um, where we'll, again, be together in a different way in here. Um, and for those who wish to speak to the to the whole group, you can. Those who don't wish to, please come lend an ear and be part of that. If you're staying on for a very long time and you don't want to be part of the closings, of course, you can not come, but it would be lovely if you want to. It would be really lovely if you want to. Um, and then supper time, the four of us teachers will be in and we'll meet upstairs and debrief. And then Christina will give a closing talk and Dana talk in the evening at seven and ask that everyone comes to that okay and then on Wednesday morning there's there's a schedule up with a final sit together I can't remember when it is I think it's 10 to 10 30 something like that and then there's um you you're invited warmly to stay for lunch if you would wish and there'll be you know the usual books in the library and chance to have tea and biscuits together and clean your room and all of that on that uh, Wednesday morning. Any questions about that? Um, that you need to know the staff of course will give a closing at some point to help you do ride share and taxis and all of that. Yeah. Okay, so I'm saying it now so hopefully you don't have to be wondering what's going you, you might still wonder what's going to happen tomorrow of course you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow but it gives you some structure for what's happened there'll be plenty of time for dipping in and out of silence for more, tomorrow <clears throat> so today I wanted to talk a little bit about practice a talk for this retreat but also for thinking about our life a little bit and a life of practice and what just a couple of ways of thinking about that inspired actually from something I got in my email this morning which um, <clears throat> was a blog from Tanisara and she was teaching here in the summer some of you will know her she's British uh, um, woman who was a nun for many years um, married to Kitasaro and they teach here regularly um, and she's a deep, deep practitioner and she's also a social political activist as well and um, 
she's currently at Standing Rock, um, which if you don't know about Standing Rock, I'll tell you a little bit about Standing Rock. Um, and her blog was titled, which is what inspired me to speak about it, was, is called Being, Being in a Living Prayer. Being a Living Prayer. So what it might be for us to consider our practice um, as, a, as, a, as a potentially moving into being a living prayer and what that might mean for us and our world. So I'll just tell you a little bit about Standing Rock. It's actually the whole title is Being in a Living Prayer and the Art of Collective Resistance by Tanisara. So Standing Rock is a, is a place and community of indigenous people in Dakota in the United States. And there's, um, oh, I'll tell you, you can read this afterwards if you like, I'll just read a little bit of it. Um, Standing Rock is an indigenous-led resistance through the power of collective prayer and ceremony. Its context is the 500-year-long impact of colonialism on First Nation people, which inflicted one of the largest genocides in human history. Alongside mass invasion of native lands, a litany of broken treaties, legislated cultural oppression, including the forced removal of children, and ongoing marginalization of indigenous rights. This generational domination remains firmly in place um, illustrated by the state of North Dakota attempting to force, through intimidation and violence, the Sioux tribe to accept what a town, a white town, a few dozen miles away at Bismarck City had rejected, namely the Dakota pipeline through the heart of their community. The assurance of energy trans. trans Transfers Partnership, ETP, who are laying the pipeline that there will not be an oil spill into the Missouri River, which the line traverses, are empty promises given that there have been hundreds if not thousands of reported pipeline spills, including those from ETP pipelines. At the heart of this resistance is a commitment to break the cycles of violence born of the mindset which, which has been come to be called the colonial mindset, right? which we all know in our minds as that which can rise above, objectify as a basis for domination. Right? We, we know that. We have it in us. It's not someone else. All minds have that capacity to break the cycles of violence born of a colonial mindset, which feels entitled to extract for self-benefit regardless of the impact. This mindset is now the front line everywhere, within and around us all. Increasingly, our choices will be influenced either by a colonializing, psychopathic corporate agenda, and here she's speaking about the whole earth now, servicing extortionate amounts of wealth for a minuscule percent of the global population, although contribute to a necessary resistance upon which our survival as a planet now depends. This is the good news. Standing Rock offers an indigenous template for wise choices from seven Lakota values around which the camp orients itself. These values, elaborated 
on by what I have experienced and heard at Standing Rock, she's there right now, speak to collective resistance as both an inner training as well as guidelines for family, community, society and business. First one is prayer. The second one is respect. These are things that aren't going to be unfamiliar to you. The third one is compassion. The fourth is honesty. The fifth is generosity. The sixth is humility. And the seventh is wisdom. At the heart of this sacred, prayerful and ceremonial resistance is a commitment to complete nonviolence. My understanding of this, from what I witnessed and heard and experienced, is that there is an invitation to align with a deeper power. This power, articulated in this context as guidance of the ancestors, as the forces of nature, and as the overall guiding intelligence of the Great Spirit, pulses within us. At Standing Rock, I experienced my heart being stripped down to its essential rawness. In place of socialization strategies, what arose was strength of authenticity, of sharing, of camaraderie, and a wonder at the resilience of human beings rising up. Here's what some of what I heard from an indigenous man who is a water protector and leader of the heart and spirit. He said, what should be remembered about Standing Rock is that it began with children calling us to pray with them, elders too. We must mean and do what we say. Fighting from violence disrespects the ancestors. The ancestors are fighting the battle also and they need us to be here without violence. You must pray for yourself to take out your pain and have love put in your heart. As we unify with nature, she will heal us. He also said, One day, at the height of the Iraq war, an elder grandmother prayed to the ancestors at the sacred fire to ask the war to stop. They responded by saying to her that her prayer was a good prayer, but it was not enough, that everyone must pray to stop war. We are at a precipice, they said. Everyone must now pray. So I just want to tell you some lovely pieces about that and then we'll look at what it might mean that everyone must now pray. <laughs> and what um, On Saturday night there was at th 3 o'clock Dakota time, but whatever time that was everywhere else, um, people joined around the world to um, make prayer for the people at Standing Rock. And the people at Standing Rock asked to call it prayer, actually, um, and they asked that we could be in silence together. That was a big part of it, like a half an hour silence and then whatever ceremony people wanted to make. And that recognition that the silence is a really important thread, perennial in the human story, it seems, to connect us with whatever is this word he calls of this deeper power. Also some very... Uh, 
there's a lot of support coming for the people at Standing Rock and Tanissa is there with a the whole Dharma community so people such as ourselves have uh, raised money and erected two teepees and are supporting and joining um, the resistance and also a whole group of uh, former veterans of the army of the US Army have uh, sworn and more and more are joining to protect uh, non-violently protect um, the, the the water protectors called the water protectors. So whatever comes from, I think the, the uh, military going to be moving in next week is the thought. Whatever comes, there's something really growing here and a, an example um, of collective response that's for this particular cause but also for the whole protection of um, this life, actually, which probably, as everyone in this room knows, we're with a, on a precipice with, if we've not tipped already past that. So I can print that out and you can read it if you want tomorrow. But let's think what this means of this kind of resistance that's a living prayer or being in a living prayer. And whether that means you're someone called out there or called to stillness here at Gaia House or called in whatever way you called, I'm not suggesting there's a hierarchy here of where we're called. Actually, if we can listen to how we're called, this is really the prayer. This is really the prayer. So... Um, Let's just pause a minute with the people there right now. The snows are coming in. It's cold up there. I think it's up towards Canada somewhere. Um, excuse my geography. <laughs> somewhere up there towards Canada. Um, it's getting cold there. But the reports are that there's a lot of beauty and a lot of dignity um, and a lot of strength that's arising together here at this place as a as a an example for all of us. So if you want, yes, let's join in a, a minute of what can sometimes be called, what was it, a deeper power. It's tricky, these words, isn't it? The, the, the words of prayer and power and deeper power. Or, I know 12 Steps uses higher power and there's sort of bigger power or vaster this. Or, you know, we have a kind of history, a mixed history with this whole conception around prayer and whatever it is that's being prayed to which maybe I'll have time to go into but whatever that means through your silence through that depth of what you love let's connect through the silence for a minute
being in a living prayer means handling whatever layers arise for us, whether it's our guilt or shame or our start rising away from the body, rising away from the heart, handling the layers that um, take us away from each other. And the Buddha handles this really well with really clear pointers to this. So I want to hold this, the standing rock as the center and the context of this possibility of looking today of what it might mean to be in a living prayer or be a living prayer as we go into, as we, as you are already actually, it's not as you go, it's already here, it's already here. So one of my, I think in each talk I've talked about one of my students, haven't I? This morning, again, he wouldn't mind me saying, he said, I've been really caught up lately, and he's really someone who wants to try and make some money. <laughs> he wants to, fair enough, right? Fair enough. He wants to make some money. He said, I got really caught up lately. Um, I've kind of forgotten to sit, and I'm... And I've noticed I'm getting into all these kind of coarse conversations in the office and it's fun at first, but then it leaves a really bad taste in my mouth. And, um, and he said very honestly, very honestly, and he goes, you know what, the environment, ah, I don't care. He goes, I, I've, he goes I'm, I'm not even there to care. He goes, I kind of miss the caring. The caring is good, although it's painful. He goes, but I'm not even caring at the moment. And this honesty was his way back, his honesty was his way, his thread, his handhold back into what he deeply cares about, and deeply loves, of waking up, of um, whatever his language of expression of the waking up is. I don't think his language is being, living, being a living prayer or being in a living prayer, but his language and whatever is your language, and I'm offering this language today. So we work with the caught up part, not because we have to be someone good or we have to be a living prayer or because it's better to be someone like that, but because soon enough all of us come to the place where we're tired and exhausted and we feel the loss of sacredness or the loss of belonging or the loss of fulfillment or the existential scramble that says, wait a second didn't work. It didn't work. And the Buddha, again, brilliant, I think, and if I give you some of the ways his concepts around craving are translated in this regard, probably you know the framework of three types of craving, um, namely kama tanha, vibhava tanha, and bhava tanha. Tanha is the thirst, the craving, the hunger for something, something, right? Classically translated as kama tanha is the, the craving for, for filling up with sense pleasure, filling up, filling the hole, filling the hunger. It's not against the sensual realm. It's the using the sensual realm. The second, the vibhava tanha, is usually translated as that craving for becoming someone. 
right? I'm going to become a better person. I'm going to become in a better meditator. I'm going to become. And we're kind of leaning out our momentum in the future and we never, we never arrive. We're already divorced from the sacred home. And the third, the vi- the we bawa tanha, the craving for non-becoming. Get me out of here. Get me out of this uncomfortable, chaotic mess of being human. Get me out. And it's kind of got a leaning back, a disappearing away from the world. One of my teachers translates these second two. I think the first one is fairly obvious, the craving for um, filling up, filling up the senses. The craving for becoming as that desire to um, stand out, the desire to uh, win the competition, the desire to stand out. Now the Buddha stood out, I'm sure he did, but that, that was not propelled on that ego sense where we're, we're, we're missing something and we desire that standing out to be seen rather than seeing from that depth seeing that comes when we're um, more in contact with something more timeless, more sacred. And interestingly, he translates the desire for non-becoming. see if I can find the words he uses. I like it a lot. He says, yeah, this is the uncertainty and denial around being a responsible entity in an interrelated universe. Right? The uncertainty and denial around being a responsible entity in an interrelated universe. Ever felt that? <laughs> uncertainty or denial or just no. No thanks. You know, whatever has been our history, we may have been too responsible and we feel like, oh gosh, if I'm here knowing my connectedness with all things seen and unseen, it's going to be a burden. I don't know if my heart can handle it and I want to step back. I want to disappear. So what all of us will see from practicing, and we can see it in very fine microcosmic moments, is that each of those cravings leaves us bereft, leaves the heart bereft. Check it out. You know it. <laughs> you know it. I, like, I think the Buddha's language is really helpful. If I'm feeling bereft, what's happening? Sometimes it's that there's um, atmospheres of the chitta that are coming for healing, old atmospheres of loss, of bereftness, of grief, and they're coming to be known. Other times... I'm bereft because I'm leaning out and I'm trying to get that thing. I'm trying to be that person. And my heart is pushed and I've lost touch with what is beautiful, with what is sacred. Other times, I think I spent a lot of time here on medita- in meditation. Oh, Please get me out of this complicated mess called myself. 
but the hair's breadth of aversion to that complicated mess I call myself pulls me away and my heart permanently longs to come home. So let's come back to the living prayer. You as a living prayer. Have you ever thought of yourself like that? You don't have to be perfect. Prayer doesn't have to fit all the images that some of you might have grown up with. I think our new version of prayer is going to be rather broad. It's going to be include many realms, straddle the... Um, actually, there's a beautiful... There's a, uh, I'm wondering if it fits here. It's a beautiful description of um, uh, a spiritual practitioner um, uh, uh, integrated many, many qualities um, from the purity that we tend to think of, the sort of immaculate purity that we tend to think of, um, or many of us might tend to think of as more spiritual, to the tenacious witnessing of the mind that can stay right there with something, right? That's not about the sort of the pure snow-like delicacy, to this really strong, tenacious witnessing, to the, um, what's it called, the erotic devotion, the erotic devotion where that, that desire to come closer to what we love, that has that devotional quality in it, all of these, the purity, the steadfastness, the strength, the attunement, all the levels of us coming to the prayer, coming to the table. <clears throat> so let's go back to a beginning, one beginning, even though there's no beginning from the Buddha's point of view, but this is one story of beginning. Back to the story of body, back to the story of your arrival in this realm, which you might not remember your birth, our birth, the birth, birth itself. Because one teacher, one modern contemporary teacher calls the global crisis a crisis of embodiment. The loss of contact, the rising above, the rising away from our individual body, the rising above earth into what might be called that mindset where we can look down, objectify, see things kind of clearly a bit and do what we want with them. The basis to be able to extract from people and dominate ourselves and each other. So the body, the body, the body, the body. Our body is the vehicle that expresses any prayer, any practice, any sacredness, any action, any view, any words, any feeling. It comes through our body. We are constantly transmitting ourselves all the time. For better and for worse. We can't hide it. We don't have to become it. We are transmitting this life force and it's more or less clarified and in any one moment it's more or less kind or um, wise. As individuals, we are, as body, we are these outcrops, these outcroppings of nature, these little whoop, hummocks, these kind of clay, the clay that's grown tall, as one poet calls us. 
We are the clay that has grown tall. We're formed of clay, earth. And for some time, for some short period, here we are, born, living for a more or less, sometimes it might feel interminable, but it's kind of usually at that other end, seems like pretty short. You speak to any body who's passing middle age, it seems to go quicker and quicker and quicker. Remember my uncle, my uncle Du, Uncle Dermot, was, oh, Uncle Dermot, he was a builder and he had, I had two uncles. There was Uncle Bob and Uncle Dermot. Uncle Dermot, they both had big forearms like builders do. And he, um, hairy forearms, that's the kind of thing you remember, isn't it? You feel it when you're, you're little and you really see the clay. You know, when we get a little bit only in the head center and it's, it's different, but yeah, these arms. And I remember he was about 75. He hadn't got sick yet. He, he, he later got sick. <coughs> And I'd never had a sort of meeting with him on any other level than playing Christmas games and, you know, singing songs and lovely, but never these kind of questions about existential matters. And and we ended up on the phone one day together and we have a birthday, that's right, his birthday's the day before mine. So it's close, and we were just, he was becoming 75 or something, I was, whatever I was. And he said, Kath, he goes, I, I can't believe it. I can't believe where it's gone. He goes, it's all getting quicker and quicker. And he had this tender, vulnerable, um, which I'd never seen. He was this kind of tough, cockney builder. Um, lovely, but this 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 face of this tender vulnerability in the face of these unstoppable forces of nature it was very very touching to me. As she woke me up, we're this clay that has grown tall. Outcroppings of nature that while we're alive seems like there's this sort of conduit for this special kind of electricity that nobody has an explanation for yet. And may they never try and, you know, we can't fully wrap our minds around consciousness no matter how much we try. There's this sort of special kind of spark that animates us while we're alive. And that doesn't, it seems, once we're dead. So maybe something about this living prayer is something about this animating force. Call it what we will. But we know, either from our direct experience or through things that have happened in our life, and commonly it may only be at moments of birth and death, that many of us will will notice it if we don't practice or look deeply that at birth if you've been present for a birth or have your own children or I don't know, maybe you remember your own in some way but in that moment when that force that incredible force pushes through and thrusts itself into another 
little bundle of clay that's pulsing and pushing and thrusting and undeniably alive. That makes, can make the most thickest heart gasp. That unstoppable force. And now, no matter how dull our perception comes, this can wake up many of us. I, I, I was present for one of my nephew's births. It was a caesarean, actually, so he didn't even thrust through. But they let me be present for that. He didn't, he didn't thrust. He was actually asleep. <laughs> he was asleep when they took him out. And I was there. My sister-in-law, well, she was the whole thing, right? But... Um, they had put a little screen for her and my brother was up that end, up the head end. And they let me be at the other end. And they kind of took him out to sleep. Still. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Still. There it is. That clay, that <gasps> pulsing, breathing, snoozing little thing. Another brother of mine, this mo- the most confirmed atheist in the in the tribe, lovely lovely brother, has a deep social conscience, an action, but conceptually he will not allow he he's, um, he will not allow anything than the the modern creation myth that the Big Bang creation myth can do it for us and all is good and now we get on and serve and I remember him around our house my my parents house when his first child was born and for maybe 10 days he was he's a lovely man anyhow but something was shining in him something that he couldn't wrap his head around Something that he couldn't explain and render flat from that contact with that little Ella pushing, pulsing, thrusting, unstoppable. And at death, not always, can be hard, but there's something about that living light as it, whatever word you want to put, transitions, ends, leaves, changes. Something about that moment as the living light, the animating principle. Is no longer animating that clay in that way. It takes a thickened heart, I think, to not tune to something of the mysterious. It might be the silence, it might be the love, it might be the inexplicable 
that I can't wrap my head around. So one of these principles of the living prayer of the seven principles was humility of that coming back to earth, that mindset or the, some of our modern mindset has tried to rise above this unstoppable thrust of this creative spirit. The humility is realizing that we can't control this. Being a living prayer may be to be a co-participant in this creative dynamism that right now is animating you to be upright. It's not you. <laughs> I mean, and it is you. You didn't wake up this morning thinking, shall I be an animated dynamic principle today? Well, sometimes we don't want to be, right? And that's the Vibhava Tanha. No thanks. <laughs> no, it's like, well, what do you do with this? You know that Nagarjuna verse, something like, what do you do with a world that doesn't go away? What do you do with a life that doesn't go away? Study it. Turn it into a living prayer. Stand as that living, creative, dynamic principle. You don't have to do it. We're not doing it. It, it comes and it's like a, like a revolving door. It's sooner gone or changing form or whatever, however we understand that. To uh, live uh, in a living prayer, to be a living prayer, is to humbly descend for most of us. There's a descent into the mystery, the dark mystery of body, of earth of things that don't appear as ordered or as sharply declarative as many modern minds would like to be able to render everything. To live to be as a living prayer is to inhabit our materiality and restore it through our practice, through our intention, through all those seven principles, through our view, through our love of truth or the mystery, through our action, through our body and our belly, to restore
our, our living body to the sacred. And that doesn't mean just, oh yeah, of course it's sacred, it belongs to something intelligent and beyond me, but through our attention, through our moment-to-moment moment, moment moment daring, actually, to, um, like Uncle Do on the phone that day, f- there's a kind of vulnerability in being here. It's kind of open. We're an open system. We're not a closed loop. We're an open system. This inner and outer, this chitta, this heart-mind is, is co-arises with everything else. Every impact, every contact, inner or outer, shapes our response, including our intention, including what is our best knowledge of wisdom. The Buddha invites us to know the elements, to know the body as elements, right? To reflect upon the body as the four or five elements of earth, water, fire, air, space. To know it, to know those intimately, to be able to take our hands off them, to not be so fixated on body is actually to restore it to the sacred. It's this interesting dance of coming closer in but with an attention that is free, that is not fixated. So he invites us to know the elements. And you will have, probably most of you, done practice with um, uh, contemplating the elements through the heat, through the density, through the space, through the liquidity, through the um, cohesion. Today I want to read you another take on the elements as we move into this contemplation of the living prayer. So this is also for the four elements and this is for you um, right here and now as you sit because a living prayer can only happen with immediacy, with mindfulness, with some connection to refuge that is um, timeless. So to bring each and every action of your body, speech and mind into a sacred prayer through the elements to honour each of the elements. We honour the prayer, the sacred, through the element of earth. You are earth. You are dark. You are heavy. You are fertile. You are grounded. You are deep. You are nourishing. You are life-giving. We honor ourself and each other as living prayer through honoring the element of earth. We honor the sacred through the element of water. You are water. You are fluid. You are clear. You are vital. You are refreshing. You are renewable. You are flowing. Right now, your body and the heart, mind, the chitta, your soul, all of these elements, physical through to the energetic, through to the qualities of chitta, inner and outer. We honor the sacred through the element of fire. You are fire. You are bright. 
You are hot. You are intense. You are illuminating. You are fire. Can you feel that? That which we can take to be, yes, sometimes I have to work with it skillfully, but that heat, that illuminating force animating you right now, return it, restore it through your attention and through your conception just for now. Play with it. You don't have to take it as a final philosophy. But play and what is the effect to know that you are fire. You are hot. Yes, all those people that thought you were too much or too big or... Yes, good. You are intense. You are illuminating. You are hot. You are expanding. That's what fire does in the chemistry lab. Under the, on the Bunsen burner, under the little thingy, it expands stuff. We honor the element of air. We honor the sacred through the element of air. You are air. You are light. You are unencumbered. You are movement. You are fast and you can change direction. You are air. That's the four, just four for now. Four elements. Breathe. It's not just concept. You know that through your direct contact with body, with chitta, with mind. Breathe yourself right now as this outcrop of nature, the kind, the aspect of the cosmos that can reflect on itself, the kind of clay that at least we know, there might be other kinds, the kind of clay that can reflect on itself and can know itself directly as absolute belonging, absolute, absolute growing out of the earth and absolutely not limited to any idea that the mind has about what this clay is, what its depths are, So we don't become a living prayer as a bawa tanha. Oh God, now I've got to become a living prayer. Jesus, it was bad enough trying to be mindful. (laughs) (laughs) That in you, that awake principle that was thrust into life or maybe you were plucked And one day, sooner or later, this clay, without that, whatever that is, is restored, becomes compost. Many things I wanted to share. <clears throat> they can wait. Or maybe not. I have to let go. This is a letting go moment.
so prayer in the way that I'm using it isn't just the um, petition or prayer that we might have associated that some of us may have may may enjoy but some of us may feel like really didn't do it or didn't fully touch what needed to be touched in this life that kind of moving beyond or growing beyond perhaps that sort of infantilizing version of prayer that can be to another way past and including the rational that doesn't want to limit our conception of the mystery to any one concept of the guy in the sky or anything and yet still can be touched and open to being in relationship with mysterious otherness without even making a noun of that Last year, there was a, a training that I was part of called the Eco Sattva training, um, out from a group from DC called uh, Washington DC. I call it DC now, like I, like I come from America, DC, um, Washington DC. Uh, if you're from England, um, uh, Sangha called One Earth Sangha, and they they uh, made a, a training for people who wanted to uh, deepen both in practice but in activism and earth activism. And one of the teachers on that particular course, um, they had one indigenous person as one of the teachers. Uh, he had a lovely expression from his language um, that what the, 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 the words of referring to that higher, bigger, deeper, lower, whatever power, that sense of um, mystery. The word it translated into English was mysteriousing expanding you can't really get your head around that can you can't sort of oh, I've got it nailed I know what that looks like the mysteriousing expanding and put it neatly on my altar no it's for me anyway it evokes some kind of um, it invites a, a my hands to be open, my mind to stay open. That kind of vulnerability of what I imagine at times is uh, the experience of the people in, at Standing Rock. To actually have that courage to stand and stay as best they are able with a spirit of respect. sky above, earth below for each other including those that they want to say no to absolutely how to be able to stand without making other, absolute other but also recognizing yes still wish to stand still have to stand and we practice it here daily because on a retreat so much is stripped away We can't go to our familiar refuges, or not as many of them. The familiar refuge of <laughs> that looks like the refuge of the piano, doesn't it? Wasn't that was actually the refuge that was that's the refuge of the computer, either. 
nothing wrong with these things, but you're willing to stand. You've been willing to stand. And I've seen actually lots of you stand, literally standing, doing standing meditation, willing to stand. Saints stand when we don't forget other, that it doesn't only kind of coalesce here, but in that reverence for body, heart, mind, breath, body, working with what arises, that we're there standing with sky above, earth below, and each other. That takes courage. Well, tell me if it doesn't. It takes courage for me. <coughs> takes determination, takes steadfastness, takes subtlety, takes, ah, oh, takes you that you must love something. I mean, sometimes we're desperate. But even in that desperation, it's because we sense a possibility. And sometimes we're not desperate, but we're coming to practice because we love something so much. And maybe that desperation that sometimes some of us feel and draws us to practice and comes back again and again at times, right? Of course, that that's on a trajectory to refine and meld the heart into that blazing love that stands at the beginning when that little life is thrust out that stands at the end whether or not people can touch it at that moment something in that door is open very often even you know my my dear mother died last year and i was there and it wasn't easy for her in the last this isn't making some you know, lovely story about death. It wasn't easy. There was an hour that was really hard. Really hard. Physically and what I could hear coming from her. And yet, it's hard not to stand still in some kind of reverence for this force, this creative dynamism that animates us for a while. So I'm gonna end with a poem um, from Lisa Starr. She says, it's called, I question the seven sacred directions, and they answer. Questions. And it's, she, she's using the elements here. Questions. To the air. Who taught you to touch my hair that way? Which chest of which bird is your favorite? Why are you so moody? Fire. Could you control yourself if you had to? You know I'm not afraid to look you in the eye, don't you? Are you ever sorry when the barn collapses on the bleating cows? Do you have a lover? Water. If it's not true that I'm your daughter, will you lie to me? Which do you like better, the calm or the storm? Earth. Can you feel my embrace? Do you ever... Do you ever want to just throw your hands up and walk away from it all? Do you plan your reactions or do they just happen? Above. Do you really listen to our prayers and our songs? 
Are you ever lonely? Do you weep more when we make peace or war? Below. Who taught you your patience? Are there moments when we all dance together? Within. Why this fist around my belly? Can't you do something about this sorrow? Answers. Because you are my daughter, you shouldn't have had to ask. For every question, one blade of grass. For every sorrow, one golden shaft of wheat. For your loneliness, I give you children, laughing. Have you seen me blow and ripple through the tall grass? It's like that with your hair. As for the cows, I am sorry for their fear. But one day you will understand that even their pain is necessary. Walk away from all this green? Never! And about my lover, none of your business. And one more thing, dear one, sometimes you are afraid to look me in the eye, and then, and only then, do I feel lonely. And one more thing, dear one, sometimes you are afraid to look me in the eye, and then, and only then, do I feel lonely. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.